Welcome to another podcast from Best Self Magazine, the leading voice for self-empowerment, holistic health, and authentic living. Beyond the label, breaking free from the stigma and clutches of mental illness naturally by Dr. Christina Bjorndal. It is often hard to pinpoint the exact moment when mental illness begins in one's life. A question we are taught to ask patients is, what was going on in your life when you were first diagnosed? I find the answers I receive in response to that question vary. Some people recount a stressful incident, such as the death of a loved one or divorce, while others have a vague memory of their past and it all seems blurry. Suffice it to say, there is no one-size-fits-all scenario. When I look back on my childhood, I can remember a few incidents where I struggled with my mental health. And what's difficult to discern is how much of that was normal childhood experience, kids being kids, and how much of it was actually clinically abnormal. It didn't help that my own insecurities and anxieties seemed to be on overdrive from the moment I entered the world, given that I was adopted. Truthfully, I think this fact may have clouded everyone's judgment. As a result, most of my behavior was chalked up to the fact that I was adopted versus the fact that I had a mental illness. From the beginning, with the way I processed first learning that I was adopted to overhearing the negative comments made to my parents from some family members who said things like, blood is thicker than water, cast a strong belief within me very early on that I simply wasn't good enough, like I wasn't truly wanted. It all fed my feelings of inadequacy, which then played out on the school grounds, and I became a prime target for kids to pick on. Despite my insecurities around adoption and being picked on in elementary school, there were no other traumas in my childhood. All was well until I became a teenager and developed an eating disorder around the same time my parents were getting divorced. It was then that the fracture in my emotional foundation deepened. In my life, stress was a big problem. I had been an overachiever and I put tremendous internal pressure on myself to be the best. Yet subconsciously, I had developed a way of operating in the world that kept faulty core beliefs of unworthiness alive within me. I never learned to manage stress and I just kept pushing myself. I was the top athlete and student in high school, made the dean's list in university, won academic and athletic scholarships in university. And it all served me well until it didn't. Anxiety and depression strikes. My first depression hit me like a freight train, almost like a switch had been flipped. It seemed one day I was me and the next day I was no longer there. The person I had been disappeared behind the clouds. As the weeks wore on, I slipped further and further into the depths of its clutches. 
The only problem was that I didn't realize I was depressed and I didn't have words to express what I was experiencing. I was physically, mentally, and emotionally paralyzed. At this time, no one was talking about mental illness in the media, and the word depression had never been mentioned in our household. Accordingly, I had no frame of reference to identify what I was going through. It was an isolating experience that left me feeling like I didn't belong in my body, and my body didn't belong to me. My friends at university noticed that something was off with me. And out of concern for me, one of my friends, Lisa, spoke to an advisor at the university student health clinic. She wanted to know what she could do to help as she recognized the seriousness of my state. I had stopped going to our track practices and was barely functioning. She was advised to make an appointment for me. By this point, I had sunk very deep and was contemplating suicide. The thoughts were there, but I did not yet have a specific plan. Lisa was also terrified that I would either be upset with her for talking about me to someone else or that I wouldn't go to the appointment. Maybe on a soul level, I knew that I needed help. And even though I didn't understand or comprehend what was going on, there was an indifferent willingness to show up for the appointment. So I went. And it was the slow start to the unraveling of my mental anguish and the beginning of my journey on the road to mental wellness. I was diagnosed with major depression and anxiety and prescribed imipramine, a tricyclic antidepressant. The diagnosis of depression and anxiety was a relief and a curse bundled up into the same package. I felt relief that there might be a solution, but I felt stigmatized and shamed by the mental illness labels. Even though I had been given a diagnosis, it didn't immediately lift the cloud that was hanging over me or shift the tides of self-doubt in which I was deeply immersed. Now, with the benefit of hindsight, I might refer to what happened as an existential crisis or adrenal fatigue, but I had never heard of those terms in 1987, let alone depression and anxiety. What I have learned since studying naturopathic medicine is when we are under stress, our adrenal glands produce cortisol to help us deal with the stressors we are facing. When our ancestors had to run from saber-toothed tigers, this was a useful and potentially life-saving response. More importantly, it didn't occur on a daily basis. But today, it's as though we constantly have one foot on the accelerator, and eventually we are bound to run out of gas or burn out with anxiety and depression as the result. Antidepressants are designed to alleviate the symptoms of depression and anxiety by supporting neurotransmitters. However, they do little to address the root cause of one's symptoms, which may stem from hormones produced by the endocrine system. There is no magic pill, despite what modern-day big pharma commercials tell us. There is so much more to the story. 
At that time in my life, I was striving for excellence in all areas, academics, sports, work, and relationships. It was as if I had run out of gas because I had not learned any stress management skills. It also felt like an existential crisis because I was feeling indecisive about my career path and I felt that if I didn't make the right decision, my life would be ruined forever. Ascent into Madness It had been three months since I started taking the antidepressant imipramine. During the first several weeks, I experienced little to no change. But then, gradually, glimpses of my old self started to appear. By early March of 1998, I noticed a considerable increase in energy and I was sleeping less and less. And by the end of the week, I had little to no sleep for three nights. I was euphoric, fun to be with, energetic, magnetic. I had racing thoughts, rapid speech. I was full of ideas, loved life, started re-engaging with friends, went out dancing, and had no insight or self-awareness to see that my behavior had become increasingly erratic. This all culminated in me spiraling out of control in a delusional state of psychosis. 911 was called. When the paramedics arrived, I resisted them with all my strength and power. Therefore, it took two police officers, two ambulance attendants, my mom and my friend, to wrestle me into a straitjacket. A new diagnosis. At the hospital, I was put into a rubber room. I exploded deeper into rage and madness and was injected with Halperidol, a powerful antipsychotic medication, to calm me down. Eventually, I was moved to the psychiatric ward. And when I was discharged, I was sent home with a prescription for lithium carbonate. I was still processing and accepting the fact that I had depression and anxiety and that my eating issues were far from resolved. And now I had a new diagnosis to digest, bipolar disorder type 1. Instead of accepting the diagnosis, I stuffed it into a deep, dark place that I dared not to look. I didn't want anyone to know that I had been given that label. And every day I wore the mask that everything was okay on the outside. But meanwhile, I was dying bit by bit on the inside. I was also wearing the never let them see you sweat mask and continued to overachieve in the world. Old habits fit like gloves. And this was one I knew well. Upon graduating from university, I began my career in corporate finance. Within four years, I had been promoted three times. However, the last promotion was a struggle for me. And unbeknownst to me, the branch manager had fixed the commercial portfolios so that the one I managed had all the problem accounts, while the other portfolio manager handled all the A-plus accounts. Accordingly, I was spending countless hours at work and felt like I was drowning in my work. My self-confidence steadily dwindled. I was in over my head and too proud to admit it, 
let alone ask for help. The seeds of self-doubt grew into uncontrollable weeds that I could no longer pluck from my consciousness. And on June 9th, 1994, I attempted suicide. So what exactly happened that night? As with any episode, it was multifactorial. Ultimately, I think it was the combination of the various stressors in my life that resulted in me attempting to take my life. Moving, a new job, intense portfolio, financial stress, lack of socialization, poor diet, no exercise, poor self-esteem. And what I remember most are the thoughts that plagued me. The self-critical thoughts that repeatedly told me that I was worthless, I was no good, no one cared about me, and that I might as well kill myself. And if my voice of reason piped up with a rebuttal, such as, that's not true, you have worth, the voice of doubt would quickly put me in my place with a cutting rebuttal. This mental tug of war was exhausting. I had such a hard time turning off those thoughts that after many months of being terrorized by them, I decided the only way to stop them was to end my life. My life didn't end, but I ended up in a coma with kidney failure on dialysis. And I was told that I would need a kidney transplant if they did not recover. I can tell you that I was certainly not impressed when I realized that not only had I been unsuccessful in my suicide attempt, but also I now might be handicapped for the rest of my life. At this rock bottom point, I was given a book by Marianne Williamson to read called A Return to Love. I read a passage on surrender and I began to think about healing How do I recover? How do I learn to love myself? Is there another way to feel other than depressed and anxious or in fear of mania? And slowly, very slowly, a crack of light began to shine through my broken heart. I figured that perhaps God wanted me here. And if it wasn't my time, I had to ask myself what I was going to do with it. When I returned to work, I couldn't deny that my career at that time was not what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. However, I was unsure what else I wanted to do. I continued to climb the corporate ladder and ended up reporting to the CEO of HSBC Asset Management Canada. But there was always this tiny whisper from my heart, nudging me to make a change. It took me many years to muster up the courage to leave my job security at HSBC. The search to change led me to a public lecture on mental health. At the lecture, I listened to Dr. Abraham Hoffer, a nutritionally oriented psychiatrist, Talk about using vitamins and minerals to help people regain their mental health. 
I left the event invigorated and filled with optimism that there was another way to help manage my mental health conditions without the use of pharmaceutical medication. The turning point. I am where I am today because of Dr. Hoffer, as well as the work of my other healthcare professionals. My initial understanding and awareness that nutrients play a role in mental health was due to Dr. Hoffer. Prior to becoming his patient, only my naturopathic doctor had tried to teach me that what I was eating would affect my mood and how I felt. Dr. Hoffer prescribed essential nutrients that my body required in order to make the feel-good neurotransmitter, serotonin. I was suffering with anxiety and depression when I started his protocol in October 1999, and within a few weeks, I felt them lift. After 15 years, I wondered if I was finally free from the roller coaster ride of depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, type 1, and bulimia. When I felt better, I was able to take stock of my life. I hadn't been able to do this before because I was so stuck in the stigma and cloud of the mental labels I had been given that I couldn't see beyond them. When the clouds lifted, I began to experience joy, happiness, a sense of calmness, peace, and comfort. I was then able to look at my life, my values, and my direction. And it was after listening to Cheryl Richardson, a life coach and author, being interviewed by Oprah Winfrey, that my life changed with one question. During the episode, she encouraged the viewers to contemplate the following. If money didn't matter, what would you be doing with your life? I repeatedly sat with that question. And what consistently came up for me was to become a naturopathic doctor and help people regain their mental health the way I had. That, of course, was followed by, are you crazy? You can't quit your job. You can't leave your secure position. Well, thankfully, I was able to take a deep breath and not be swayed by self-doubt, fears, and insecurities. This was a change that my heart had desired since I encountered my first depression in university. The only difference was that I was learning to listen to the voice of my heart or intuition versus the voice of fear from my mind. In February 2000, I resigned from my position at HSBC and went back to school, first to high school and then to university to get the science prerequisites that I would need to get into naturopathic medical school. I was 33 years of age and beginning again. When I first went to see Dr. Hoffer, he was in his 80s, and I knew that he wasn't going to be able to help people forever. Today, statistics report that one in four people around the world will be affected by mental illness at some point in their lives. That is far too many 
as far as I'm concerned. For the last 25 years, I have been accepting myself and my diagnosis and have made accepting myself and my diagnosis my number one priority. It has become my primary objective and goal in life to find natural ways to manage the mental illnesses that I have had to overcome. Bulimia, anxiety, depression, suicide, and bipolar disorder type 1. The road to wellness. I believe that eventually life has a way of getting you to turn into this present moment. Through my journey to mental wellness, I have delved deeply into my own soul to understand the turmoil I have faced. I have learned that even the darkest parts of ourselves, those parts that we don't like, love, or accept, are a call for love. These aspects of ourselves only seem dark because we haven't shone the light of love on them. And every day we are invited by life to accept it just as it is in this moment. Something is trying to break out, break free, or be born in someone who is struggling. And in our suffering, we often feel alone. And with mental illness, we always seem to be running away from it, trying to fix it, trying to get rid of it. And in these efforts, we end up ignoring the present moment, the gift before us. Remember that life is here. It is in this breath in this feeling of sadness or this feeling of joy. It is all inclusive. Whatever shape it takes is all there is now. And to be open to life, we need to see it as sacred in all of its messiness. And that means letting go of our expectations about how we thought it was supposed to look like. Today, I am privileged to help many patients who struggle with anxiety, depression, eating disorders, and bipolar disorders. And in my book, Beyond the Label, 10 Steps to Improve Your Mental Health with Naturopathic Medicine and online course, Moving Beyond, I explain how there are four aspects to us as individuals, physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual, and that to achieve optimal health, the following areas need to be addressed. Diet, sleep, exercise, stress management, our thoughts, our emotions, how we behave and react in the world, Exposure to the environment, spirituality, love, and compassion for yourself and for others. 
The book and the course are blueprints for the steps you can take to find balance in these 10 areas. And I encourage you to move beyond the label or labels you have been given and instead ask you to travel back to the center of your being, to the heart of your humanity. I want you to remember that you are more than the labels you have been assigned. Labels can serve a purpose initially, helping you to understand that there is an explanation for what you are experiencing. However, in the end, you are more than the label and you can move beyond it. And my hope is that you move through the stigma and shame of mental illness and find peace in mental wellness. And I want that for you and for all of us. The ultimate lessons are about how to learn to love yourself, how to find your inner voice, how to quiet the disempowering voices of others and yourself, how to follow your path and live as your heart desires according to the rules you define for yourself. So maybe you experience anxiety, are depressed, or struggle with your weight or an eating disorder. Or maybe you have bipolar disorder, borderline personality disorder, or another mental health label. Or maybe you are just sick and tired of being tired and sick. Rest assured, you will find help within these resources. My hope is that ultimately you will live a balanced life and embrace all that it can offer. If you've been recently diagnosed or are struggling in any way, please accept my helping hand. Have faith that you can get well. I believe you can. And I wish you all the joy there is to be found on the healing journey. Let love for yourself and others always be your guide. And trust me, I know I've walked in these shoes and your healing journey can start today. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Learn more at bestselfmedia.com.